Welcome to your Active Stack Brief podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a closer look at the issue of generative AI from the perspective of the creative sector. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is your Active Stack Brief podcast. Today I'm joined by Tom Chatfield, author and tech philosopher. Hi, Tom. Hello, good morning. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, so, Tom, you have uh, written extensively about artificial intelligence and the role this uh, disruptive technology uh, has in uh, today's society and how it's set to transform today's society. So what are your thoughts on this uh, on this topic? <laughs> My thoughts are that it is indeed transformative and, and that it's many things. We forget, I think, that artificial intelligence now underlies search engines and medical research and image recognition. Everything we do online has artificial intelligence sitting between us and data. In, in a way, artificial intelligence is an essential feature of the modern digital age, because the only way we can interact usefully with huge amounts of data is to have some kind of machine learning layer making that data relevant and useful. But as an author, I'm particularly interested in large language models and technologies based upon what are known as transformers, which are very rapidly given us very, very powerful tools that can work with language to an unprecedented level. And I think in terms of public perceptions, as well as authors and others, this combined with the power of image and video-based and increasingly multimodal AI, which simply means you can put anything in and get anything out, this has suddenly been transformative in terms of public debate an awareness because we are seeing truly human-like results from inhuman systems. So this poses a lot of profound questions in terms of what we do next and what we should do. So uh, before we dive into uh, the, the author perspective on generative AI, I was wondering, um, I, I wanted to pick your brain on something because there have been all sorts of parallels uh, between the race of generative AI and, and other technological revolutions like um, the birth of the internet. Um, to me, uh, the, the parallel I see closer is perhaps the, the introduction of the smartphone that was this shiny new toy that at the beginning it was cool, but no one really knew how to use it. Um, uh, so are we, are we at that stage of the curve where you know, uh, this thing is going to become embedded in every aspect of society uh, that we cannot even imagine at this day. I think we are at something like that. Interestingly, for me, one of the close analogies is electrification itself, when in the 19th century, the world gradually moved from being a world powered by gas and coal to being a world where electricity came into people's homes. And then the wireless telegraph came in and telephones and an information age was born. And I think we are seeing another kind of iteration of that information age when everybody has access to tools that have 
the kind of power and flexibility that even 10 years ago only massive corporations possessed. Of course, the catch is that massive corporations still control these tools and massive corporations generally are the only people who know what goes into these tools and why and how it's done. So again, we find ourselves faced with an incredibly powerful new technology that is also crying out for various kinds of regulation and explanation understanding. And, and the question in some ways is a very old one. When something new and powerful and profitable comes along, how can it be made to serve human interests? So what are those human interests and how do we understand them anew in this transformed context? Right. And what is the answer you give yourself? What are these human interests we need to defend? Well, one thing we need to remember is that human interests are defined differently in different parts of the world. We can be very Eurocentric in talking about this, but China is an AI superpower. China has a very clear AI strategy based upon, you might say, Confucian or Taoist or legalistic principles, which emphasize the state at the expense of the individual and harmony. Again, there are many states in the global south who have different visions of what human goods the internet ought to serve. So I'm not being an obtuse philosopher, but we need to remember that these principles are highly contested. And the principles of a liberal, democratic, pluralistic society where individual autonomy, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and the democratic scrutiny of policy and leadership, these are by no means certain goods that will just exist and everybody agrees upon. So I think in some ways, we already know many of the values that underpin a plural, liberal, democratic regime. But these values are under threat. And we need to look at the ways in which technology might serve people if we want to defend those values. So I think we should, for example, be very aware of things like surveillance, of things like privacy, and of things like structural imbalances of power, where people do not possess the necessary information to scrutinize those who wield power over them. And these situations, I'm pleased to say, Europe and others are leading the world in trying to address with emphasis on risk and transparency and accountability and so on. I think there's an enormous amount of good that can flow from AI. But ultimately, AI has no agenda itself. It serves particular agendas that are developed by human companies and politicians and indeed powerful individuals. So I think as fast as possible, we need to recognize that AI is in the world, that it is not abstract. It doesn't want anything, it doesn't think. Uh, we do all of that. All right. Uh, a good reminder that technology is what we do with it and it's not doesn't possess its own agency. And I was going to say, if you're looking to regulation, you're coming to Brussels is, is probably the right choice. Um, so um, diving into the the author perspective now, because generative AI has been said to uh, make a lot of uh, jobs redundant, but perhaps the creative industry more generally is the one that is uh, the most under attack right now. So what is your perspective as an author on this topic? I think it's a very strange moment for authors. Authors tend to think that when they're writing, they do a job that is human in an irreplaceable way, that is to some degree about the unique exercise of talent and 
the articulation of complex ideas and feelings through language, that there's something rather mysterious about this. And yet, we see machine systems that are nothing like human minds producing incredibly convincing and coherent and increasingly um, indistinguishable from certain human outputs works. And we have to cope with the combination of fear and wonder. This is the most powerful tool we've ever had to enhance human authorship, but it also puts at risk entire sectors and conceptions of value. One of the ways of understanding this for me is to realize that language itself is a social technology. And when we write, we are to some degree letting language speak through us. There is a great deal of human knowledge and understanding latent in language. And so AIs, the understanding that large language models have of the world, exists because language itself is a technology built by billions of humans with enormous amounts of human understanding baked into it. All of the understanding and apprehension is at root human, but large language models are able to tap into that and extrapolate from it. And so I guess we end up in this position of tremendous fear and excitement and uncertainty. And what I would like to see is a great deal more clarity about how and why the human use of language and the telling of particular real stories from one person to another is intrinsically valuable and precious and very different from the automated, statistically plausible generation of words. Some areas of authorship where humans are already most like machines are, I think, likely to be highly automated very soon indeed. But for me, that doesn't in any way diminish the very different and fundamental value of a human being seeking to find words and speak to another human being about the real world that we live in and about a particular human perspective, which after all, AI lacks. It doesn't exist in our world at all. It has no perspective. It merely generates statistically plausible responses to a prompt, and that is very powerful, but it has nothing to do with the human act of writing and creation. So I, I guess this comes down to what is creativity? Um, and and uh, I mean, it's a philosophical question, but you're a philosopher, so <laughs> uh, uh, bear with me, right? So can AI even be creative or is it just, you know, chewing what was previously said and spitting it out in a new form? Or is creativity perhaps prompt engineering? Uh, the fact of being able to, to, uh, to make the system output creative? So we have, I think at root, a clash between two views, which have existed for at least as long as mechanical reproduction has been an issue. Marcel Duchamp's Fountain, the, the works of Dada, the works of Andy Warhol, the works of Roy Lichtenstein and others, took machine reproduction and made that the subject of art because they realized that there was a profound conflict between, on the one hand, the reaction that humans have to any object when 
to some degree, we can appreciate an object aesthetically and be moved by it or find it useful or interesting, regardless of the process that went into it. We can look at a urinal on the wall of a gallery, or we can look at a soup tin label, and we can find beauty and interest in it, just as artists like Turner were inspired by the machines of the Industrial Revolution. But we can then talk about creativity as a human act of choice and creation. We can't reconcile these because they both exist. So from the perspective of the audience, we live in a world where there can be much appreciation of art that is generated by machine means or human machine means or anything like that. I have a very strong, pleasurable, aesthetic reaction to art generated by, by Mid Journey, by Night Cafe, um, to art generated by just using the I Ching to pick random letters, which was a Dadaist technique. But as a writer, I have a deep interest in the creative process of humans choosing to create new art. I don't think we need to reconcile these things because ultimately they're both descriptions of different parts of creativity. There is the creativity of the, the audience, there is the creative act of appreciation, and there is the creative act of creation. And we're moving to a world where there's going to be a lot of human appreciation of machine-generated objects. What we cannot afford to be is confused. We cannot afford to think that we're seeing one thing where we're seeing another. And this, I think, cuts to the center of a general point. I apologize for being very philosophical here, which is that for us to have an honest relationship with art or politics or other people, we need to be clear about how something was made, about the methods behind it. So we need there to be a degree of transparency and we need to be able to trust the story behind something. If we are purely interested in the effect of something and have no interest in how that effect was achieved or by whom or why, then I think we flatten ourselves to the pure level of consumers and we do begin to get rid of creativity and the dynamic relationship between creators, society, artists and thinkers. We don't just want to end up in a world of unthinking consumption where we swallow anything and everything that's generated to look nice or taste nice without any consideration about how it was made and what it would mean to interrogate and question and make new things. So ultimately what I'm saying is there needs to be a constructive tension between creation and consumption. And for me, creativity resides in the ongoing human questioning and interrogation and exploration of that tension rather than just the flattening of society into a kind of pure, unthinking, consumerist realm, which is a very dangerous place. But I'm afraid, I mean, we are already moving into that direction and we are about to be flooded by this um, incredible amount of, of AI-generated text, uh, oh, yes. visuals, images, uh, and, and videos. So Yeah, we're already, we're already drowning in it. Yeah, you're quite right. We're already drowning in it. And of course, mechanical... How do you stop it? You don't stop it. You enter into dialogue with it. This is the new landscape. 
and we we are in conversation with this fact. But you don't give up. You defend the idea that human creativity and understanding the provenance of things and understanding the data sets, this is where we get into the fact that this is not just some inevitable total destination like the singularity where we give up and we are inevitably in a world of ubiquitous fakes where everything is just algorithmic mush. Instead, you recognize, I think, that for example, people have very little interest in being read an audiobook by a machine, even if it sounds a lot like a human. We're doing a podcast now. Podcasts are incredibly popular. Why? Why is listening to human voices have a little chat so popular in an age of AI-generated video and miracles? Partly because there's a human connection there. To hear someone's voice to hear this kind of a conversation is hopefully to feel that you are accessing another mind in an intimate and authentic way. Now, we are going to have a period when huge amounts of machine-generated stuff pours across the world, but that echoes past times when huge amounts of mass-generated stuff entered the world and did a great deal of good and transformed art, but it will not diminish the need for human connection, the desire for understanding, or the urge to make art in response. And so rather than give up, I think we need to start taking a very close interest in what it means to help people navigate this world with understanding rather than ignorance, what it means for humans to, to add value and exercise their creativity. And yes, those areas which we can defend and should wish to defend and those areas which we cannot defend and where the machine generated may be preferable to the human even. And I'm not going to pretend that it's humans good, machines bad, not at all. Understanding good, ignorance bad. <laughs> well, uh, I'm of course a huge fan of critical thinking and, and I, I fully appreciate what you're saying. At the same time, just to give a negative um, perspective to this, isn't generative AI undercutting the livelihood of the creative sector? So essentially, how do you solve the issue of copyright? Mm -hmm. Because this is going to be the issue for this industry. Of course, it's a huge issue. Uh, I'm in involved with several organizations in the UK um, around copyright, and I think it becomes very important indeed to look at the principles. Copyright fundamentally allows creators of all sorts to profit and to sell and to participate in the success of their work in the world. Before copyright, we had patronage by elite institutions or individuals, or we had individual subscription, or we had widespread universal plagiarism. Why is it good for a society that people should be able to earn money and control how their original works are produced. Well, fundamentally, I guess this defends human creativity and ingenuity and originality and communication. Now, some areas in which people make money, in which people profit, are being hugely undermined at the moment. It's already dif difficult for creatives, and it's going to get more and more difficult. But there are two things I would say in response to that. And the first is that being able to make a living from the exercise of a talent 
It's not just a nice thing that is a kind of optional extra, like a cherry on the top of society. It's part of the fundamental features of a society that knows itself. What do people study in school? What do people use to help them think? Words, ideas, images. These are the ways in which we learn to think and speak and empathize and communicate and scrutinize laws. The language we're using, we learned by reading text, by talking to people. And so this stuff is not just optional, it is vital, especially if you look at education and young people. And the second point I'd make is that we have a choice. Yes, there are tidal waves of stuff coming and many jobs will be transformed or damaged and it will get harder and harder in many ways to make a living. But that doesn't mean that we have to simply abandon a social good. We can push back against this. Ultimately, societies can decide to try to defend the value of things they believe are important. And in particular, I think we do need to remember that current systems are trained on huge volumes of very poorly documented human-generated texts and images and so on, and that requiring transparency and permission around these and seeking collective solutions that acknowledge and reward the work of creators is, is a big part of moving forward in a, in a way that is sustainable and desirable for a society. Right. And, and uh, just in terms of which solutions could be found. Uh, so, for instance, in the UK, you have very big lawsuits against these um, AI providers. Uh, in the EU, uh, we are, of course, looking at uh, regulating artificial intelligence. So which is the way to go for you? I mean, I lean towards a sort of collective and kind of values-based approach. I think I will be very interested to see the results of the lawsuits. I'm not a great legal expert, so I, you know, I can't comment on the detail there. But I think it seems to me that many AI companies have been very, very laissez-faire about the documentation of data and training sets. And also we forget that a great deal of human labor goes into training and improving AIs. They're not magical boxes. Tens of thousands of people work on reviewing their content and making it less offensive and less dangerous and fine-tuning it. They use human inputs to make it better. And if an AI system is trained on the outputs of an AI system and that goes on for a few generations, the results degenerate into nonsense. It's humans who anchor it to the world. So once the dust has settled on this, it's my belief that we may find um, that the importance of humans at every level in the system is actually far greater than the kind of magical thinking that sees AI as a box that does everything, um, would suggest that in fact human involvement and acknowledging this human labor of all sorts um, is incredibly important. And also that human permission to some degree for me, the principles that I think this comes back to are to do with trust and transparency and accountability. If you want me to trust a system, I need to know what it's been trained on. I need to be able to withhold my permission as a creator, and I need to know all of the ways in which it has used things from the world and in which it may be misleading or limited. Similarly, if I'm consuming a creative product or an output, I need to know its provenance. 
I need there to be some accountability and transparency about why I should accept or endorse these claims and about the status of something. Some of the most interesting cases we're seeing, to my mind, are just cases as in the US about the very naive use of AI-generated content, uh, such as legal reporting, that turns out to be wildly untrue. AIs are incredibly powerful, but they are in no sense yet connected to the world like people. They hallucinate, they fabricate, they are brilliant, they have something approaching profound understanding, but they also have a deep need for humans to anchor them to the world. And ultimately, what I would like to see is a recognition of the degree to which human involvement and credit and understanding is not optional and in fact should be one of the most important kind of outputs and preconditions of using these systems ethically and responsibly. Tom Chatfield is a tech philosopher and author. Thank you, Tom. Thank you very much. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Evie Curie. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi and thank you for listening. <laughs>